Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 21 of the Clarinet Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Diderio Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Diderio is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Diderio ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds. Today's guest is the remarkable Evan Zaporin, who has always been one of my personal clarinet inspirations ever since hearing his recording of New York Counterpoint. It's interesting to note that when Evan was here in Calgary in 2015, I had the chance to meet him, and the day before his recital, or concert where he played New York Counterpoint, there was a huge snowstorm in Calgary here, and it was in May. The day before we spoke for the interview, it was also in May, there was also a huge snowstorm, and he actually shares a really interesting story about the recording of New York Counterpoint back in 1996 with yet another huge snowstorm, so something's in the air with the uh, with the weather in that piece, but... Anyways, Evan is a composer and clarinetist who makes music at the crossroads between genres and cultures, East and West. As a clarinetist, he performs as a soloist and as a member of the Evian Trio. He also works regularly with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble and the Steve Reich Ensemble, with whom he shared a Grammy for the piece called Music for 18 Musicians. He is also the founder and director of the Gamalam Galactica, and his opera, A House in Bali, was featured at BAM Next Wave in 2010. From 1992 to 2012, he was a founding member of the Bang on a Can All-Stars, finishing his tenure with the group with an appearance on an episode of PBS's Arthur. His compositions have been commissioned and performed by Kronos Quartet, the American Composers Orchestra, Stephen Schick, So Percussion, and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. He has collaborated with, among others, Brian Eno, Paul Simon, Ornette Coleman, Thurston Moore, Meredith Monk, Philip Glass, Terry Riley, Louis Andreessen, and many, many others. His most recent project is the hour-long In My Mind and In My Car with Christine Southworth for bass clarinet, electronics, and video. His recording of Don Byron's clarinet concerto, which he commissioned, was named one of Downbeat Magazine's 2015 Albums of the Year. At MIT, he is the head of music and theater arts and director of the Center of Art, Science, and Technology. We discuss Evan's life, influences, career accomplishments, and go deep into the recording sessions for the definitive version of Steve Reich's New York Counterpoint that was made in 1996. This is a must-listen episode for any new music fans. The giveaway for today's episode will be several signed copies of Evan's CDs. For a chance to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to subscribe with your email address to our mailing list at www.clarineat.com. Before we get started, I'd like to play a clip of Evan Zaporin performing Steve Reich's New York Counterpoint on this very, very snowy day in New York City. He'll tell you all about it in the episode. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the interview. Clarinet.com podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Hi, Sean. Great to be here. You might remember, I think it was two years ago, or was it last year? You're out in Calgary here, and there was a huge snowstorm. Um, you might find it amusing to know that we just had one the other day. 
I do find that amusing. I, I, I'm sorry for you. When That was only a year ago. When that happened, I remember waking up and looking out my window and thinking that maybe I had slipped into a coma for six months or something or <laughs> you know, somehow was just waking up from a long stretch of amnesia. It's a very common occurrence here in Calgary, I must say. What, comas and amnesia? Uh, no. <laughs> the... Uh... The whole waking up to snow at any day of the year, and a lot of it. It could happen. At, it actually snowed last August, believe it or not. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, but the thing that impressed me was that by mid-afternoon, people were out sunbathing and all the snow had melted. So Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange city we've got here. <laughs> so my first question, actually, we're going to go to a much warmer climate. Um, to get sort of started with how you got to start in your career, when you were 20, you dropped everything and moved to Bali. And this is a very different trajectory than most other performers take. Um, in fact, most spend their life in a practice room up until even their mid-30s. How did this shape your musical life and the direction of your career? Well, that's a good question. Apropos of what we just discussed, I had been living in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, which has, you know, epic New England winters. And I had grown up in Chicago and I had spent a year in Rochester, New York. So... Um, Aside from the music and the culture, I was pretty interested in finding a way to get away from winter for as long as possible. But really what happened was that I had just, there's two things. The first was that um, I had been overtaken by Balinese music from the moment I first heard it, or at least the moment I was first consciously aware of hearing it. It was doing all the things that I wanted my own music to do and all the things that I felt I was hearing in things like The Rite of Spring or Miles Davis, uh, John Coltrane, Weather Report, Bartok. And, uh, you know, it also had a kind of organic quality to it, which I suppose might have been my own projection, but I just really wanted to know as much as possible as I could about it. Um, the other thing was that, you know, I was mainly studying composition at Yale and playing clarinet and, you know, sort of being indoctrinated into what new music was at that point in this culture and uh i knew i wanted to look for something else you used the word indoctrinated there i sense a bit of animosity towards uh, the did you mean it that way i wouldn't say animosity just honesty i suppose i mean i think what happens is that at least for me uh and i can't imagine it's this different for anybody that you make a decision to go a certain career route and uh then you try to find out what that career route is and you're young and impressionable. So, um, you know, for instance, when I went to Eastman, which is where I went my freshman year of college, I had an incredible composition teacher named Joseph Schwantner, I, and, you know, who was amazing in every way, took a lot of care with the students, spent a lot of time with, with young composers, you know, really uh, trained us in the, tr in the craft in a way that I, you know, I still value to this day. But one of the things he also did, and he did it for completely ethical and conscientious reasons, uh, was that he gave us all a list of the pieces we should get to know that year. Uh, and, you know, he was doing this because he wanted to make sure we knew what was going on in, quote unquote, the field, right? And this was all very hardcore modernist music, which was at the, really what controlled academia at that point, right? So, I mean, all sorts of amazing pieces, don't get me wrong but really hardcore, you know, Boulez, Moderna, Stockhausen, Babbitt, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, so I tried my hardest to kind of get behind that and for a brief period of time kind of embrace that as my own 
aesthetic, but it's not my aesthetic. It's not why I do music. It's not who I am. It's not who I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, this was a struggle a lot of composers and performers had at that time. Now it seems a little remote because there are other struggles, but um, there's always a pressure to conform to what uh, the dominant culture says you should be, whatever that dominant culture is. The irony is that, uh, well, not really the irony, but in a way the validation of that is seeing young Balinese composers, like for instance, Dewa Alit, who I work with a lot here, uh, feeling that same pressure within Balinese culture, right? And trying to break out of it by getting into weird Western music. <laughs> so, you know, one way or another, it's all about this way in which we all struggle as individuals to define ourselves, some of which involves uh, embracing the influences around us. And sometimes it involves going, yeah, I got to find something else. How did you first hear Balinese music? Well, it's not really a matter of when I first heard it. It's a matter of when I first consciously heard it because my father was an avid record collector with very broad taste. And so in my home as a kid, we had music from everywhere. And this was at a time when that wasn't so easy to come by. So, I mean, there were a couple of incredible labels like Folkways and then later on Nonesuch where you could, you know, get these records like, you know, uh, Pakistani snake charmer music or, you know, the real music of Tahiti or whatever, right? But they were really one-offs, you know, it was very hard to get information about what, what this music was. And that involved a lot of trips to the library and actually like the way people did research pre-internet, you know, legwork. But anyway, that music was around. So I know that I heard it because I used to, uh, you know, dig through his record collection and I had kind of cool, uh, teachers in high school who would play very, uh, very weird music for us, uh, so I know I heard Balinese music. And in fact, Schwantner himself at a certain point played me the Ketchak, which is the monkey chant. And, but I wasn't ready for it. But then a couple years later when I was in New Haven, I was working at a little used record store and somebody put on uh, one of the Nonsuch discs, music, so music from the morning of the world, which is a very good but very you know, broad sampler of, of music recorded by David Lewiston in the 1970s, I would guess, in mm -hmm. Bali. And I was just something about it at that moment. You know, it happened, the first track, which is Boris, which is a dance piece I've seen now hundreds of times and not even really considered a particularly amazing piece by Balinese standards, really standard repertoire, but like the first accent hit in the first section and it was like, the sound and the harmony, even though they don't consider it harmony, and the timing and everything. You know, it was syncopated, it was cool, it was weird, it was funky, but it wasn't like in your face funk. You know, there was a kind of distance to it. And then it got really, you know, then the groove was very powerful, but unforced. And uh, so it's one thing to really fall in love with the type of music and, and even to call it your favorite, I suppose, but it's something else entirely to then pick up and sort of move across the world to it. Did you view that as sort of a pilgrimage out of respect for it or, or just out of curiosity? Or were they kind of the same thing? Um, I think there were a number of factors. I was definitely, I didn't think of it really as a pilgrimage. I mean, there was some serendipity involved also in that pretty much immediately after I heard that record, uh, I overheard a conversation in a pizzeria where somebody mentioned another guy 
who had just gotten back from Bali and brought a gamelan with him. And uh, so I just leaned over. It was in a booth, right? And I just leaned over to the people and I said, hey, can you give me this guy's phone number? I'd like to call him up. So it turned out that guy was a guy named Michael Tenzer, who uh, is now like the great scholar of Balinese music in the, in the Western world. He, he actually teaches, he's kind of a neighbor of yours, he teaches at UBC. And mm-hmm. he's one of, one of my oldest and best friends. And basically the reason for that is that I called him out of the blue. Turned out he was in California and I was in Connecticut. And, you know, I just said, hey, so I, you know, I heard you have a gamelan. Uh, how about it? You know, and he said, yeah, why don't you come out and join? <laughs> so uh, that's what I did the following summer between my junior and senior year in university. Uh, just went out to the Bay Area, uh, which was 19, summer of 1980, kind of great time for a, a young man to go out west and uh, spent the summer with this new, newly formed group he was starting, which became Gamelan Sekarjaya. And, you know, through that, met a community of other musicians and met Balinese artists and, uh, you know, dancers and musicians. And, and uh, you know, so by then I, I was sort of working my way into that community a little bit. Still, nothing really prepared me. I'm a suburban... I, I was a suburban kid from, you know, the outskirts of Chicago. I hadn't really been out of the U.S. before. Um, and uh, I hadn't even been to Europe. I had been to London, you know. But, like, I knew nothing about the world other than what I read about in books, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had no idea what I was getting into, you know. And I also had no idea how vast that culture was going to be and how all-encompassing it was going to be to study it. So... You know, I mean, one of the things about your question is that you talk about um, people kind of holding themselves up in practice rooms. I was oddly, now that I look back on it, diligent when I went to Bali because, I mean, you know, definitely I, I spent some time like exploring the region and, you know, just kind of backpacking around and stuff like that. But once I settled in and found teachers and I was really working, you know, and I was you know, going for lessons every day and transcribing what I learned and really like trying to like hear as much music as I could and, you know, get inside that culture, you know. And I look back on it and I think, man, you know, I could have been like surfing, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, or just hanging out or, you know, which is not to say that, you know, I didn't make friends and have a good time and sort of, you know, be an innocent abroad in pretty much every way possible. But it was kind of like a practice room for me because what I was looking for was a different model, a different way of doing music, a different way of thinking about music, a different way of organizing ensembles, a different way of, of, of having music be a part of a community and a culture. At that point in your life, you were still very much pursuing your career as a composer. Um, and then you actually mentioned, we talked about this a little in Calgary, and then you mentioned it on a YouTube video that you gave an interview at Carnegie Hall. But you feel that you became a professional clarinetist by accident. What do you mean by this? Well, um, I guess I was sort of referencing in that interview this line from this that great movie about Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, Hillary and Jackie, mm-hmm. where she goes up to someone and goes, I, I, you have to understand, I just became a cellist by mistake. <laughs> and, and I really love that line. I, but I think what I meant by that really was at the simplest level that I my career plans were to be a composer, but I was always playing. And what happened was that I would sort of, I mean, obviously like playing music was always 
the present thing in my life, right? Like, I mean, there was never a moment where I wasn't in like five bands and doing this and that and the other and, and you know, gigging as much as I could. And, but I never thought of it as a professional thing. It was just life. And the idea of what my profession was going to be to the extent that I had any idea was that I was going to compose music, you know, be be Stravinsky or be Bartok or, you know, th those kind of models, right? But what about using models like Liszt or Rachmaninoff or Chopin who actually, you know, played the instrument and composed as well? Yeah, but I, I didn't appreciate their music then. Oh, interesting. I do, I do now, but, but I didn't then. I mean, the you know, the more, I think, more relevant comparisons would be, you know, jazz guys. Mm, yes. My, Miles Davis in particular but, you know, really, or Thelonious Monk or, or anybody like that. And, then, you know, I mean, obviously there's no comparison. I mean, these are like eternal geniuses. But in a certain sense, that was really the model. That's still kind of my model that, you know, you compose music that you can play. There's also a certain kind of modularity in their music that allows it to be played by other people. But, you know, the, the other part of that question, and this gets a little bit more self-reflective than maybe you uh it may be a little TMI in this sense, but, <laughs> um, you know, I tend, I basically live, I've always lived my life a little bit by reading a lot into the tea leaves around me, you know, whether it's like, oh, I heard this record in, while I was working in a record store and then that's the thing that made me change my life. I mean, in other words, as opposed to, oh, okay, you know, there's another way in which one could go oh, well, clearly that means I want to like explore the music and then methodically like listen to 40 other cultures and then go, okay, this is the one I want to do. But for me, it was more like I, I heard that at that point and then I met this guy in this pizzeria and therefore that's what I should do. You know, like reading the signs around you, it's kind of a dumb way to live. But well, do, do you view it kind of like spiritually or like yeah, as a yes. path of fate? Or Yes, yes, that's the way I view it. But you have to follow, I think, a little bit of kind of life's... Uh, curve because that's the curve you're given you know yeah i agree but i don't it's it's uh i don't necessarily recommend it because <laughs> if you do that you've got to like sort of follow the peaks and valleys i mean i've accepted it about myself i can't do it any other way but i've also seen that there are people that you know really plan out what they're going to do in their life in the end it does come down to you know john lennon said life is what happens when you're making other plans you know so there is always some aspect of that but um well, I think it can be done, you know, intelligently. You don't have yeah. to, you know, just because, you know, a, a, a certain acorn fell outside this morning doesn't mean you have to get up and move to Paris or whatever your random thought you have. But but uh, if you are able to look at something and, and take that path in a smart way, it yes. le leads you good places. I guess, you know, philosophically, it's more just about openness, you know, and about being able to kind of turn yourself on a dime when you need to or when you, you know, and sometimes you you're doing things that you need to do and you don't really know it consciously because like I said, looking back on the Bali thing, like I don't know that I was consciously going around saying like, okay, I can't really be a contemporary musician in the sense that I'm, that I feel I'm being groomed to be, uh, you know, it was more just like, wow, this music is cool. Let's go there. Okay, now I'm here. Wait, whoa, look at how they do this. That seems like such a healthier model for music and society, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think there were reasons bubbling under the surface for me. But, um, you know, it also just has to do with, 
like later on in terms of the clarinet, like there were sort of two stages, one of which was with jazz, where I was always kind of interested in jazz and playing jazz, but never really thinking about it as the direction I was going to go in. And then, you know, I started getting positive feedback for performances. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I could actually, this would be kind of a nice way to make a living. Ridiculous idea, but it was sort of how I subsisted until I decided to, you know, go a different direction in my mid-20s. But it didn't, but it, you know, it, it definitely came from seeing the reaction more relevant to the, to the direction I ended up going in is what happened to me in my late 20s when I felt that I was beginning to find a voice as a composer. And I couldn't get anybody to play my music, but I could get people to get me to play my music. So, and I, you know, would go to new music festivals or whatever, you know, albeit on a fairly low level at that time. Um, and people would maybe like my music or maybe not like my music performers would maybe do a good job or not. But when I played my music, people would respond to it. And so I thought, well, this is the way I can get my music out there. Like I need to be the champion of my own music because I didn't like the way other people were playing it. And other people didn't necessarily like my music unless I played it. <laughs> I wonder if a lot of composers feel that frustration, like as far as they write something down, they want it a certain way. They sort of, don't want to or can't execute it themselves and then they never really get to hear it how they intended it. Do you think that's common? I think it's really common and what's also incredibly common particularly with young composers is to mistake a bad performance for a bad piece. Because mm -hmm. you don't really know I mean and I say young composers because I see it with my students and I always go like okay look that wasn't a really good reading of the piece so it doesn't mean the piece sucks. You know yeah. you have to get the piece played well and obviously, as a composer, that also involves you learning your craft, learning how to notate properly, or, or learning how to get your ideas out there in the most efficient way, right? But it's still part of a collaborative process. But see, on the other hand, this can even go on like when you're, at least for somebody like me, even now. You know, like I had a piece, like one of my first adult commissions was a piece for a European group. I won't mention their name. And I was really excited because it was, you know, like one of my first paid commissions and it was the first time I was being flown to Europe to have a piece played, blah, blah, blah. And this, before I got there, they called me up and they said, well, you know, uh, actually, uh, we are thinking of canceling the piece because we don't like it. And I went, what? <laughs> they went, yeah, we, 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 I'm sorry, we just don't like the piece and so we, we think we shouldn't play it. And so I said, well, but I already bought my ticket and, uh, you know, I'm coming, so can you play it anyway? And they said, yeah, okay, we'll play it, but we don't like it, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, so I went and, you know, they played it and it didn't sound very good. And I thought, well, that's, you know, one of those things. Uh, and, you know, that was not fun, <laughs> obviously. I did get supportive comments from... Um, from Louis Andreessen, who I had just met at that point, who said, well, you know, you were trying to do something. You didn't just give them what they expected. You were actually trying to do something and, and they, you know, they didn't, they didn't get it. Mm -hmm. But still, like I just put that piece in the drawer and, uh, and uh, whatever, right? And then literally 20, over 20 years later, maybe, no, maybe not 20, but yeah, 20 years later, 
a guy from that group, a different guy, like the group still existed, but they had, had a lot of turnover in personnel, emailed me and said, oh, I just want to let you know uh, we're, we're playing your piece on our next tour. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I thought you guys hated that piece, and I'm not sure it's a very good piece. And they said, no, we like it. We don't understand what the problem was before, but now we really like it, and, uh, and we're playing it. Wow. So, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I said, well, you got to send me a recording, you know. Like, and, uh, you know, you can really think that you're a very confident, self-assured person, but, you know, the ego is very fragile in that way, you know. So, uh, you know, hang in there. Yeah, you shouldn't take things too seriously, I guess, because even the people who originally said something might come around and change their mind. Yeah, actually, in fact, that that's the follow-up to the story. For just, I mean, that was already like five years ago or something, right? Maybe more. But then, uh, and, and the original thing had happened like over 20 years ago. And then literally a month ago, I was... Um, I was playing in, in, again, it involves Andreessen because I was playing in the Andreessen Opera in New York, uh, Di Matiri. And afterwards, a very nice Dutch guy comes up to me and goes, oh, don't you remember me? I played in the original performance of such and such a piece. You know, <laughs> and, you know there was no recollection on his part that they had told me not to come and they told me they wanted to cancel the piece and that they'd hated it and all that. Like that was all... Done. Yeah, it's funny though, because something that's said in passing almost to one person can almost defeat the other, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, choose your words widely, I guess, wisely, I guess. Yeah, and have a thick skin. Yeah. Other side. But. So, my next question here, do you feel that the music of Balinese music draws you to other minimalists, such as Terry Riley, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, and others? But I was just thinking about this a little bit more, and weren't they sort of off on their own uh, journeys Maybe a couple, maybe about 20 years before you went, I guess. When did Terry Riley go to, to uh, the uh, Far East? Well, Terry got interested in Indian music long before he went to the Far East. I mean, Reich, I mean, all the minimalists. Um, they all drunk. went there. I mean, Philip well, they Glass. Were all, yeah, Philip Glass worked for Ravi Shankar. Yeah. yeah. I was very influenced by that. Steve Reich studied Ghanaian music both here and in Africa. And he also did a little... He did a little summer course in Balinese music, and he wrote some articles about it. And there are a couple of Steve Reich pieces that are very strongly influenced by Balinese music. In fact, you know, the real great middle period Reich pieces, you know, like Music for 18 Musicians and, and the pieces that surround that, are really his, in my opinion, his attempt to make a gamelan, you know, to make a, a truly Western gamelan with Western harmony and with with African rhythms, but in terms of like that sound, I think that's what he was going for. And before him, Harry Parch, also obviously Lou Harrison, whose 100th birthday is coming up, you know. But um, yeah, I think we were all drawn to a common thing. Um, for me, I guess the original impulse was the music that got me interested in being a composer to begin with, which I've already mentioned in this interview, but really like the Rite of Spring, Bartok, uh, progressive jazz, and, and Miles Davis, you know, like um, In a Silent Way, uh, the early Weather Report records, that kind of thing. That's, I got into that stuff before, you know, before I knew. Actually, no, I knew about the minimalists, but I got, inter I got into that music before I got into Steve and Terry's music. So you got into the Balinese music first? No, I got into Rite of Spring. Oh, oh, sorry, I'm getting all confused here. So you got into the like the really intense, Bartok, interesting. Bartok's Fifth Quartet. 
Yeah, Bartok's Fifth Quartet, uh, Bitches Brew, In a Silent Way, uh, Weather Report. So I'm just fr- trying to frame sort of a timeline in my mind here. Um, for me, like I, I listened to the music of Terry Riley and Steve Reich first, um, and then I would find out through them about something like Balinese music. But for you, did that lead you to the other composers or... No, it was all in the air. I mean, I knew about Terry because in my, in our kind of weirdo contemporary music group at Yale that was fairly influential on me, we played in C all the time as long, you know, but we were more interested in it as a open structure piece, you know, Mm. it was, and it was only when I kind of went back to that piece in the early nineties through Bang in a Can that I started to take a much more of an interest in, you know, what a deep piece in C was. You know, and now I really do consider it, you know, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. But at that time, it was kind of like a party piece. Yeah. You know, looking back today, I I think we really can have no understanding of what this time was like. But you were sort of right there in it all. And you say kind of up in the air, like this stuff was all new. It was all kind of just floating around and nothing had really settled yet, I guess. Yeah, but it's all relative because for us, NC seemed really old. Really? Yeah, we, yeah. It was like oh, something he did in the early '60s. I mean, when Terry wrote NC, I was I was uh, four years old. You know, well, so. a piece that's twenty years old today would be you know ninety five. I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't consider it that old. But I guess. Yeah, it's funny how that works, though. Yeah. But, but music changed so much in the '60s and '70s. You know, I mean, and a lot of that had to do with pop music. But I mean, you know, there were just huge tidal waves of change in what music was. The other thing that I think is really uh, hard for people to remember now is that the minimalists were not part of the canon. Like mm-hmm. you, did not, you did not learn about Steve Reich and especially Philip Glass in school. That's, the, that's what you listen to at home. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> or with your friends, you know, getting stoned with your friends, you would put on music for 18 musicians and then yeah. you go in class. And, but, you know, so that's that's the way that worked. You know, Glass was completely verboten. Reich had a little bit of credibility. I'm not really sure why that was different. Terry wasn't really nobody knew what Terry was doing in the 70s. You know, I mean, in in academia, because he had kind of forsworn composing music. He was making improvisational records and learning Indian music. And Lamont Young, that was, you know, he was kind of more known. If you went to art school, you might hear about Lamont Young, but you wouldn't hear about him in music school. Mm-hmm. Even now, very, very little about some of these composers, which is kind of sad, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is sad. Because um, it's really fundamental music, it was, you know, obviously. So you're a founding member of the Bang on a Can All-Stars, which I would consider to be one of the world's premier new music ensembles. How'd this group get started? I had been... Uh, working with the directors of the Bang and Can Festival for quite a long time. I had met them when I was in university. And when they started the Bang and Can Festival in 87, they used to invite me to, um, to play. And that was a big deal for me because not so many people were inviting me to do anything at that point. So, uh, you know, in the first Bang and Can Festival, I went and I played a solo piece called Waiting by the Phone. And I was, you know, like right before... Uh, Robert Black and I was right after like a performance of Steve Reich and Milton Babbitt was there and John Cage was there and it was really the first time I had been in the company of that kind of people right so it was very important to me and I worked a lot with Michael Gordon who's one of the composers I was in groups with him 
And then as the years went by, like every spring, they'd call me up and they'd go, hey, can you put together a group to do this? Or can you come down and do this? Or do you have a piece? And et cetera, et cetera. And I would always do it. And it was always really fun. So then in 1992, they said, well, you know, we want to start this group called the Bangana Can All-Stars. And uh, will you lead it? And I said, yeah, I don't really have, I don't want to lead it. I'll just be in it. So, and suddenly there I was in a room with Steve Schick and Maya Beiser and Robert Black and Mark Stewart and Lisa Moore. And at that time, you know, I think like we just thought like, well, this, this will be fun. You know, we'll do a concert. Maybe we'll do another couple concerts. Maybe we'll get invited somewhere, you know. Uh, and then the next thing we knew, we were signed to Sony and we were being flown to London to play, you know, at... Uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall and to record in uh, in um, George Martin's studio and uh, wow. you know yeah but you know then at that point we thought like well this is going to be great if it gets this much better year after year it's going to be unbelievable <laughs> you know yeah but, but that didn't really happen I mean uh, it wasn't really designed to be that so we just kind of staked out our position in that universe and kind of remained there. So I was in that group for 20 years and, and, you know, that was a really incredible experience for me on all sorts of levels. And I'm particularly like, it's really in that group, uh, because of people like Steve Schick and Maya Beiser and the others that I learned how to be a performer. And I think that also comes back to what I was saying about being a, being a professional clarinetist by accident, because, I learned from them what it meant to be a professional performer. I learned, you know, what it meant to to really prepare and really get in that zone and really take it seriously as as an art in itself because for me before that performance was just like a vehicle for the music. Mm -hmm. And from them I really began to understand that it was something else and that in turn performance was something else, you know, that that the performance event still had that residue of ritual and magic and the importance of the live event and how you sacralize that, how you embrace that as a player, what your responsibility is, what the opportunity is. Um, I learned that from them. So of course this, this led to many, many recording opportunities and, and you've become very well known for your recordings. You recorded the definitive version of Steve Reich's New York Counterpoint um, as well as uh, the music for 18 musicians. And uh, that recording actually won a Grammy uh, the next year. What was it like working with, with Reich? Well, uh, he's one of the most influential people on me. And I, you know, I, when I have the perspective to look back on my life, I think like, you know, I really had the opportunity to work with some of my heroes, some of my real, real big heroes, right? And, and he's definitely right up there, you know, so I'm incredibly grateful for that. Like, I had kind of met him through Bang in a Can, and then I invited him, I, I helped uh, get him a small but not insignificant award at MIT in the 90s, which was basically an excuse to bring him up, and I organized like a whole bunch of student performances around his music. Uh, and at that time, you know, this was 20 plus years ago. So not, again, it was one of these things where weirdly not so many institutions were, you know, celebrating him. So now, you know, I assume he's getting honorary degrees every time he turns around, but at that point it wasn't happening so much. So 
he came up. He was really generous with his time, and I got a bunch of student groups to do, uh, you know, several things, including, um, a, a, you know, a clarinet ensemble to play New York Counterpoint. So, you know, with all live musicians. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, that piece, you know, Stoltzman had commissioned that piece and had done a really, I think, quite a beautiful job with the original recording. And I knew that recording really well. But that recording wasn't on Steve's label and it had sort of been buried on Stoltzman's own record with a bunch of other music that didn't really have that much to do with it. I still think it's a really nice recording. But um, as it turned out, Steve had never heard the piece with live players before. And I barely knew him. And he came up to Cambridge. And I had all the players, you know, in this fairly small practice room, right? And, uh, you know, Steve came in and we started playing, you know, the opening chords. And, you know, basically he looked like his head was going to explode. Like, I mean, the sound <laughs> was just, but in a good way. Like, yeah. the sound was incredible. And he had never heard it live. And so he kind of flipped out. And, you know, I mean, I think we did a really good job, but um, I think a lot of it was really just more that unlike most of his pieces, he hadn't really, you know, he hadn't thought of that piece as a live piece. And that's true of the other counterpoints that he had written up to that point as well. You know, they were written for soloists and, uh, you know, nobody had that, that wave of playing them with live musicians hadn't really taken hold. You know, now people do it all the time, but... Um, at that time, people just hadn't gotten around to it. And I think the reason was, again, because they weren't really so much part of the, you know, the conservatory or academic scene, right? So there weren't that many clarinet teachers with studios of that size or that capability who would think to take that piece on. How many players is a total? 12, right? I can't remember if it's 12. It might be 14, actually. Well, yeah, because it includes bass, too. So there's a lot of parts. And for anyone who hasn't heard that, um, I'd really like to play a sample of that on here. Actually, I wonder if that would be possible. We'll have to talk about that afterwards. But um, how, how do people play it live? Because I own the, the score for that, and it really is just a part with the score. Are you able to order parts to rent or something? Yeah, you can rent the parts. Oh, okay. I mean, the other thing about it is that it's kind of unwieldy, uh, you know, uh, no offense to Steve, but it's the parts are written out as if for a multi-track recording. So, like, you know, those those repeating patterns at the beginning, like, you know, when you're the first person up, you know, you have to play that pattern like 7,000 times, you know. Yeah. So we had a little reshuffling, you know, we had to do a little reshuffling of the parts so that people wouldn't die, you know. <laughs> but, well, but, uh it's interesting, but, and I wanted to ask you actually about the, the recording of the piece, because, I mean, I actually made my own little recording of it, and my methods were, were my methods, but <laughs> before I tell you my methods, what, what were yours like? I mean, did you loop that stuff? Did you play it all, like, beginning to, well, beginning to end? Well, I'll tell you, okay, so two things about it before that is just that. So, you know, Steve heard it, and then, you know, I said, hey, how come you never you never put that out on Nonesuch? Because usually he would put out, like, a definitive version of every one of his pieces on Nonesuch. And he said, well, you know, I, I never really had the right player for it. And, you know, I don't, it's kind of the moments pass or whatever, but I'm still looking. So, you know, uh, if you want to give it a try, you know, send me a demo tape. <laughs> you know? So I basically, I, I recorded the piece. I auditioned. You know, he had heard us play the piece live. And then I, I put together my own recording of it, you know, uh, with Joel Gordon, who's a fantastic audio engineer that I still work with here. And, um, sent it to him and then he you know called me up and he said all right you passed the audition wow <laughs> and then uh 
he so we set up this recording session and he had a, at that time and, and and still to my knowledge worked with a fantastic producer named Judy Sherman who did all his recordings and none such and you know I just got put into the the Steve Reich machine they have a way that they do it so uh you know Steve was produ- uh, Judy was producing and Steve was present so I wasn't involved in the editing or the mixing of that right mm-hmm. uh but the other anecdotal part of that story was that um, um, we recorded it in January of whatever year it was. I can't remember if it was 95 or 96, but uh, the day we were going to do it, I, I was traveling down to New York and this huge snowstorm hit. Uh, you know, one of these Godzilla-like storms that you know very well from your part of the world. But They're here following what happened, you around. <laughs> yeah. So, no, but this was like a really, like one of these major yeah. shutdown. And I like, you know, I called up Judy, the producer, and I said, you know, they're saying there's this huge storm. I'm supposed to be down in New York by 9 a.m. Tomorrow I was going to come down tonight, you know, on the, the, the plane, the shuttle plane. And she said, no, you have to come now before they close everything. Like, just, you know, pack your bag, get to the airport, go now. Right. So I did that. And I, I, I ran to Logan Airport and I got on like this 1 p.m. flight. It's like a 45 minute flight. Right. And it's just starting to snow in Boston. And it takes off and it flies all the way down to New York and they're sort of circling around LaGuardia and then they go, oh, uh, LaGuardia just shut down. We have to fly back to Boston. (laughs) So we flew back to Boston. At that point, it's like three o'clock and I get off this plane and me and basically everybody on the plane like basically runs for the cab stands and gets in gets in taxi cabs to the train station and, you know, piles ourselves onto the next train to New York which then is supposed to be like a five-hour trip at that time and basically took like 15 hours because the train kept running into snow blockages and power outages. And so I got in New York at like 3.30 in the morning and the whole city was shut down. I was supposed to be in the studio at 9 a.m. And like, you know, there was, no, there was nothing, right? So I get to my hotel and I, I wait until the sun is up and then like I call them up and they go, yeah, okay, we're giving you the morning off. You can show up at noon. So... I show up and we record the piece and then because it was not such and you know it was all by the books right so it was like a union gig right so I was being paid like a union scale to do this piece right Mm -hmm. and then uh, I didn't get paid and uh, you know so I called the union and I said what's going on they said that we think this is a bogus session everybody knows the dates on this session were when the entire city was shut down and nothing was going on. So you couldn't possibly have been recording this piece on those days. So so we're not paying you. We straightened it all out and I got paid. But <laughs> I, That's hilarious. That's Those are the things I remember about the, those recordings much more than the actual methods. But what I will say, if you do want to talk about the method, is that it was really during the demo recording that I figured out how to record the piece. Because you think you know how to make these patterns interlock, Right. But And when you're playing like a marimba or a piano or a percussion instrument, it's pretty clear. But on clarinet, at least for me, it turns out like all sorts of calculations I made about like articulation and phrasing didn't necessarily work. Like you need the feedback of some initial recording to kind of go like, okay, how can I really make this phrase sound the way I want it to sound and still lock in with itself as a very small canon? Or, you know, there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of instincts that I might have used in a live performance turned out I had to re-examine those. Mm-hmm. And there, it comes full circle to uh, 
to Bali and that connection to the minimalist because I do think that because I had studied these interlocking traditions like Balinese gamelan and also West African drumming, that I had much more of an understanding of how you square that circle, how you manage to make lines have autonomy in and of themselves, but still lock in in a fairly metronomic way with the other parts. And that to me is really the key with that music because I've heard a lot of recordings of New York Counterpoint now. And the difference is not how accurate they are, but how much they groove, right? And they, you can't do what you normally do to make something groove. Like there's a very small margin of, of, of expression in that music. Mm-hmm. But if you play it totally metronomically, then it just sounds mechanical and that's not what he has in mind and it, and it doesn't work. It still has to have, you have to find the little cracks to put your humanity into it. So when you performed it um, on the record, you did he have you loop sections then or did you do takes of entire parts or like there's 11 parts. So would you look at clarinet six and just sort of play clarinet six for three minutes for the first movement and then move on? Or did you do smaller sections? I did each part, but I made MIDI recordings of the other parts. Ah, okay. And I'd gradually swap them out because at least at the beginning, I didn't want to play like without anything to play with because it's an ensemble piece. Mm -hmm. So I didn't try to build it up from nothing. But on the other hand, if you're playing with MIDI, then you're going to like sound like MIDI, right? So basically like I would have a kind of bed of MIDI tracks and I'd play like one or two or three tracks with that and then I'd dump that and only play with the live tracks. That's some really interesting then, insight actually. And then sometimes I would go back and replace the original live track, you know, the early tracks. So it was a kind of gradual sort of like replacement gene therapy kind of thing, you know, so that, but now I think that I could probably... Like years later, when I recorded the piano part for 2x5, which was the piece he eventually wrote for Bang & Again All-Stars, I didn't have to do that because I'd had so much experience. At that point, I had never really played Steve's music in a group. Mm-hmm. Like after, after New York Counterpoint, then he asked me to join the group for Music for 18 Musicians, and I got to tour with the group and re- record with the group. That's the recording that won the Grammy, was the Music for 18 Musicians recording. And then being around those guys, particularly the original percussionists, uh, your fellow Canadians, uh, Bob Becker and uh, Russ Hardenberger, and the great uh, late uh, James Price, who's a New Yorker, those were the real hardcore Steve Reich guys. They had been stu- they'd been playing with Steve since they were graduate students in the, I guess, late 60s and early 70s, right? Mm-hmm. So th- from playing with them, then I really got into the ethos of his music but with New York Counterpoint I was really learning it on my own so uh well I think it's fantastic to be able to play it or sorry to record it and even just as an exercise to try some of it just to see people who don't appreciate minimalism I think after they've tried to get in there with the timing and the the length of the phrases which can sometimes be very long and very kind of slowly evolving um they're surprised by the depth that they find in it and uh oh yeah no, it's it's great music, and it gives it's 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 music that gives back um, as much or more from what it takes from you. And I think that's a really as a composer performer, that's something I've really come to appreciate. It's not something people talk about very much, but there there's a lot of music 
that you you know have to like put an incredible amount of your time and energy and just spirit into and in the end you feel like you've just had it sucked out of you it doesn't mean it's not a great piece but at the end of it you just feel like falling to the floor right mm-hmm. but with rice and with and not not only with rice but for me the real measure the music that i really want to spend time with is music where like when i play music for 18 musicians you know that piece is an hour long and when it's done I just want to play it again. Yeah. And like, you know, so for me, that's really the measure. There's something like about a piece like that where you're putting everything you have into it on every level, but it's giving you something back. You know, it's feeding you. Some of that is really mechanical. You know, it just like in Reich's case, like, yeah, there's really long phrases and some of that stuff is really like difficult to sustain, which is why I said we have to like parcel out some of the parts where, you know, you're just repeating things over and over again. And even in live performance, you know, like I just did a New York counterpoint in Laramie, Wyoming at 7,500 feet altitude. And, you know, by midway through the third movement, which as you know, is pretty nonstop, all totally high, really no place to breathe, no, no place to hide. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was, you know, going like, okay, two pages to go. Okay. A page and a half to go. Okay. A page, (laughs) you know, because of the altitude. Right. But, but uh, even so, you know, there's just something really life-affirming in a real tangible sense about that music. What do you think when people play it with the tape? I mean, are we, are we all playing with your version? Is that what it is? When, well, you, when you rent the tape? When you rent it, yeah, it's my version. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> but are people encouraged to make their own? I mean, the reason I made my own, and that's kind of why I'm sorry for listeners, I'm dwelling on this, because New York Counterpoint is one of my favorite pieces um yeah and it's seminal i think it's, it's amazing most, it's so... most important clarinet pieces of, of the late 20th century without question oh i would agree but for me the reason that i chose to do it myself uh is because my the way i was hearing the piece um in my head i i don't want to say i disagreed but I, I i had a different interpretation and i wanted to try it out so that's why i kind of made my own backing track but what my question is is do you feel that the having a backing track to rent does it shape the performance that others end up making? Yeah, of course, because you're outnumbered 14 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel I mean, like it's... Plus, a... You know, I mean, I, I mean that you, what you did is exactly what you should do, right? And in fact, you know, the thing is at that time, it wasn't, it was really hard to do something like that at home, right? So it was pretty time-consuming and expensive for anybody that wanted to make the tape, right? But now, I honestly... I mean, I think, okay, for your first time out, rent the tape and you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, if you're really serious about that piece, you have to make your own backing tape. Like, otherwise, like, I, so two, I mean, the, I would say about that, I've experienced it on both levels because I've heard a lot of guitarists do... Uh, electric counterpoint. Electric counterpoint with the Matheny backing tape, right? Mm. And it's just like... I'm listening to a Pat Metheny recording that you're kind of playing over. Yeah, you know? it doesn't and have that. You know, so it, I can do that at home and just hear it with Pat Metheny playing over it. You know, like similar with cello counterpoint, uh, which which my old Bang in a Can colleague Maya Beiser commissioned. Uh, you know, she has a really distinctive way of playing. And so you're either going to cop to that, which is fine, sort of what you have to do to make it work, but then you're just accompanying Maya, right? So, yeah, I think you have to make your own recording. 
I mean, uh, the converse of that is that I was doing one performance of it once uh, somewhere in New York, and and our sound engineer, who's a, actually a good friend of mine, uh, but for the purposes of this story, I won't mention his name, like sort of queued up the, you know, the the recording like on his computer, right? And I'm playing along with it. I'm like, what is? It? I'm like, I can't play with my own recording. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, is this? Are you? Sh- is this me? Like, what's going on here? And he goes, no. This is... And then, like, I realized he was he had another backing tape. Oh, wow. That he was playing, <laughs> and I couldn't play with it. So, I mean, it just, I mean, it just sounded wrong to me. Like, and it wasn't, it was on every level. Like, little things about intonation and little things about more timing, you know, and it just, like, felt wrong. And I thought, wow, I can't imagine, because I've never played it. Like the first time I played it was with a live a live group, but I led that group, mm-hmm. you know, and then I recorded it, and I've never done it any other way. So you know, I but doing it that one time at Mirrors, I thought this is really not the same experience at all. So, kudos, everybody should record it, fellow clarinet players. <laughs> be fruitful and make your own backing tracks in New York Counterpoint. Get out and do it. <laughs> yeah. So Boozy you, never Boozy's very late on their royalty checks anyway. So, <laughs> so you um you played that piece probably countless times, but I, I saw a really interesting video on YouTube where you sort of start playing it. It looks like an outdoor festival, and people explode like it's a rock concert. Is is that typical, or was that expected in that environment? Oh yes, completely typical. <laughs> no, that was very anomalous. I've had that experience a couple times, but the reason they exploded like a rock concert was because it was a rock concert. Like that that was basically. There's these festivals now. That one was a sort of short-lived festival in London. I can't even remember what it's called now, because but it turned out to be a big disaster. Like, we played on the first day, and then by the second day, the whole thing got shut down. It was supposed to be like a four-day, five-stage kind of festival. And, and a lot of the European festivals now, when they do that, they have like the weird stage, right? So they put <laughs> Steve Reich there. And then I did the other experience I had was at a festival in Poland, actually just a couple of years later, called the Off Festival where I was on one stage and Andrew WK was on this next stage, you know, like real, you know, and <laughs> like real like rock and roll and other, other parts of the, of the venue. Right. And it was the same thing. Like people scream and it's super fun. You know, I mean, it's kind of what we all want. Right. But no, that's not typical. That one, the one you saw, which was from London, actually was one of the last performances I ever did before I left Bang in a Can, so it was kind of a nice way to go out. But, mm-hmm. uh, but um, no, that's not typical. Your first album was recorded in 2001, and it's called This Is Not a Clarinet. Um, it topped the charts when it was released, and the title is in reference to the Magritte painting called The Treachery of Images, which is perhaps more popular, more uh, commonly known as the This Is Not a Pipe painting. There's a little pipe there, and it says This Is Not a Pipe below it. Um, were you trying to make a some sort of philosophical connection and statement with this title in the music, or was it more playful in nature? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, well, both. I mean, part of it was that most of the records on bass clarinet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, in every, I guess, um, what happened was that. Uh, that was actually one of the first releases, if not the first release on Cantaloupe Records, uh, which is was the label that was formed by the 
um, some of the Bang and Camp people. And uh, it was Michael Gordon who said to me, okay, if you're going to make a clarinet record, you have to have clarinet in the title. So I decided to call it This Is Not a Clarinet. But obviously, like the whole thing was that part of it had to do with years of people coming up to me. I'm sure this happens to you. It happens to me like literally every time. Even now, somebody will come up to you after you play bass clarinet and go, what is that instrument? <laughs> The strangest and, saxophone I've ever seen. Yeah, right, right. Like literally even like, you know, at this day and age in a major, you know, in Boston, which is like a cultured city, right? You know, what is what is that thing? Right. So, you know, that, that album had a lot of bass clarinet. It had clarinet duos. And the main thing, though, was just that, you know, it comes back to what we started this interview with, which is that, you know, I really wasn't, I was always looking for a way of defining what I was doing, you know, as self-expression is me trying to kind of make my own voice as a musician happened to be through the clarinet. But, um, and not that I haven't spent, you know, time with like, you know, the Rose etudes or anything like that. And not that I, you know, haven't like performed, you know, Brahms sonatas or, you know, Messian quartet for the end of time, or, you know, I know that repertoire. I love that repertoire. I transcribe buddy DeFranco, you know, I like, I love the clarinet, right? But I was trying to come up with a completely personal way of approaching the instrument in which it was just a sounding object in which it just, the, the harmonics were just as important as the fundamentals, the breath, you, you know, there was not one sound like a classical player is going to try to get, you know, that I was really going to think of it as a vehicle for as much kind of sonic timbral expression as I could find. So by giving it that title was like, no, this is, this is something else. Maybe it's something smaller, maybe it's something larger. But um, also um, that I recorded that again with the audio engineer I mentioned, Joel Gordon, who's here in Boston. And, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to record it. And we, you know, every single piece we approached in a different way, like in terms of microphone placement and in terms of, just every possible while keeping it basically, you know, an acoustic clarinet in a pretty good sounding room. We recorded it in this ex Masonic temple down in Roslindale, Massachusetts. But, you know, we really thought a lot about, about sound. And so in a sense, the, the microphones and the room are just as much as part of it as the instrument, you know? So we just, I wanted to give it a title that kind of reflected that, you know, that, what you have here is an artifact, you know, it's the, the product of a number of factors. Myself, the composers, the, the pieces, the room. Now look, that's true with any recording, right? But, you know, I just decided to forefront that because to me, that was really what it was all about. It wasn't just like a clarinet recital that I happened to record and put out on disc. Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I feel the same way you do about recording. It's almost like an art. Uh, the album is is almost separate from the live performance. It's something in its own. It stands its own, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But so many uh, people regard the recording simply as sort of a snapshot of live, and they feel it lacks something. And I, I don't know. I can't. I can't say I really agree with that fully. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting um, the way that that um, takes place because we think that the attitude that you're describing, which is certainly my attitude, feels like a really modern attitude. And it's kind of a post, it's, it's like a post pop music thing, right? Because it comes out of the Beatles and it comes out of the whole 
idea of, you know, an album as like an art form in itself, right? And like you think that the old school composers didn't know this. And in fact, actually, I was just having a discussion recently after, with, with Todd Macover, who's my colleague at MIT composer, about Pierre Boulez and about how difficult it is to really hear some of Boulez's more complex pieces because he never really, ironically, given, you know, his meticulousness and his brilliance, like, for him, a recording was like you play it live and you throw up a couple mics and you record it, you know? And so, yeah. uh, but, but I was also, like, you can find, like, Stravinsky talking about recording in the 1960s, and he's really thinking in a very, like, sophisticated way about what it means to record a piece. Not necessarily, like, he wasn't totally with the, like, look, a recording can be, can be the end result. But he was definitely aware that there that it was a different thing than a live performance, and you wanted something different out of it. It had a different purpose, and he was very ahead of his time in that way. In a way that, like, say, Cage wasn't. Like, Cage never really got what the point of recordings was. Well, and not to throw in a plug for myself here, but I, I just finished that my first CD, and my biggest thing with it was I wanted you to be able to throw it on in the car and enjoy it as much as when you had headphones or I wanted to treat the headphones as the concert space and yeah. because that's where it's happening, right? It's, it's in your head and I, 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 the way it's mastered and mixed and, and everything is such that it can be enjoyed in that kind of atmosphere and I don't think it detracts from the music it, but it sure makes it a whole lot more kind of intimate and front and center and when I went looking for a space to record in actually uh, of utmost importance was complete isolation between the marimba and clarinet parts because that's how you can craft that kind of sound and and really get in there with the editing and make it exactly what you want um which i think you know if you just toss two mics up in a church i'm not sure you'd get that kind of result you, you can't no well that's great i can't wait to hear it <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to send you one okay anyways um yeah that's really interesting stuff you're you're so skilled with the singing into the instrument. And this was actually a, a listener question. Um, Andrew M. asks, do you have any tips for clarinetists looking to work on this technique for themselves? Yeah, practice makes perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no shortcut, but it, it's, it's like anything else. I, I think one of the things about multiphonics and extended techniques in general that people often overlook is that, you know, the non-extended techniques are things that like, for better or worse, and usually when we're too young to kind of know the difference, we just drill into our muscle memory and we drill into our minds and bodies, right? So like, you know, we play our long tones, we play our scales and this and that and the other, right? And like, so you end up with like a fairly finite list of things that you can do on a dime in any combination, right? Right, but then, you start using extended techniques to say, yeah, just throw them in there, you know, but it doesn't work that way. If you, any new element like that, like when you're singing and playing or trying to get a particular multiphonic or, you know, quarter tones, microtones, whatever, right? Like you have to get them into your body in that same way, right? So with singing and playing, like you just have to, like for me, the first thing was just learning how to like control my pitch when I'm also playing. And the best way to do that is with like unisons and real consonances, right? Like unisons are like fantastic, right? Because you like play, sing a unison with your bass clarinet or your clarinet, right? And if you're not in tune, you're gonna feel your whole body, right? Because the acoustic beats are right there 
in your body and in your head, right? So like that's the first step is to like just get your unisons in tune, right? And then you can start practicing like moving in and out of tune, you know, like, you know, when you're a little sharp, it's going to vibrate. When you're a little flat, it's going to vibrate. And when you're right on it, it's going to sound like a singularity, right? And then, of course, that's true with like all the intervals, right? So for me, it was more about finding the feel of these intervals, right? Like what does it feel like to 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 sing and play a fifth or a third, right? And like just um, spending a lot of time getting that to exactly how I wanted it to get, right? And like I said, it was much more about feel than sound. The other thing is that with, with it, with singing and playing, like in certain registers, it sounds better to have the voice on top. In certain registers, it sounds better to have the voice on the bottom, right? And so, you know, you have to kind of, and that's also different from person to person and from instrument to instrument, right? So it's more just like taking it uh, with, you know, giving it the same attention that you give to other aspects of your playing and not just thinking like, oh yeah, okay, now I got to throw some singing in there, whatever, you know? Yeah. For the pieces where I do it, I have to say also that like it's really important to like practice it without the singing and get in mm. a way like, you know, uh, you have to get it so that your um, technique on just the playing part is even more meticulous than it would be otherwise because you're adding this new element. It's going to like mess you up, you know. So, you know, like with the piece that I do, you know, the pieces that I really do that on. Like I just practice them totally without singing and then, then add the singing, you know, you, that's part of the process. Do you also, add, uh, you must do the singing in isolation as well or not as much? Not really because that's, well, I know because that's pretty easy. It, the singing is contextual. You know, the singing mm -hmm. is really gonna, is, is all about blending it with the horn, you know, like somehow I don't think of it as, um, like a duet. I think of it more like a voicing. Hmm. So it's it's more like um, how you voice chords when you're playing the piano or, or or when you're playing, you know, a guitar or something. You know, it's more like getting the sound and getting getting that uh, the feel. Do you think this kind of extended technique is something students should be starting younger? Or is it something that takes maturity to really spend time on? Oh, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. I mean, uh, I think students, to be honest, like uh, for me, what's more important is that students be exposed to improvisation and to creative thinking earlier. Like, because I really think that like the the thing that worked out for me was just being in a situation where I was encouraged to improvise and where I was encouraged to compose. And, um, you know, I see this less and less, actually, unless you go like, you know, some there are some schools that really do that, like particularly, per, you know, summer programs where they really value that, but others where they don't and where people are like still really caught up in like, you know, doing their power practicing so they can place higher in the orchestra or whatever, you know. Yeah. And then at a certain point, performers get so inhibited about improvisation or think of it as such a mountain that it, that they never get over that inhibition. But like, again, to go back to Bali, like if you study music in Bali, you know, you have to compose. That's part of the degree, you know. And I feel like that would be the real thing. If I could change anything with like a wave of the hand, it would be like just forefronting improvisation and composing, even if you have no intention 
of doing that as part of your, you know, professional life. Absolutely. It's funny because Lori Friedman and I were talking about this as well um, a little bit, and she she felt it was very very sad that you know we we uh, sort of beat the squeaks and squawks out of kids when they're when they're young learning the clarinet, and uh, it's something yeah. that we should almost be fostering because it's it's part of the the technique, especially when you get up to the altissimo register and. And, oh uh, yeah, you know, and so you, you teach a kid uh, never to squeak, and then all of a sudden you're telling him to honk out a high E or something above the staff, and he's confused, you know. And they never got comfortable with those sounds; they were almost embarrassed by them or something. Oh, absolutely. But on the other hand, then you lose the single most effective technique for explaining what you do when you do extended techniques, which is go, yeah, you know, all the stuff that we were that we had beaten out of us. <laughs> that's what we do. You know, <laughs> throw it out the window. <laughs> right. Um, we've talked a lot about your life as a clarinetist and recording artist, and we, we touched a little bit on your life as a composer. But before you wrap up here, um, so many clarinetists and musicians are satisfied just interpreting other people's music. What is it about writing your own music that, that really compels you? Well, it's funny that that uh, you think of it that way, because for me, it was really always the reverse. Like I started, you know, I always thought of myself as a composer. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was improvising and then I learned how to play composed pieces. And then uh, there was a latency period. But then, you know, once I sort of realized that being a composer was something you could do, uh, you know, which was really when I was like 12 or 13, I knew that's what I was going to be. I've always thought of myself that way. And uh, it's hard for me sometimes to even think about like about being having the musical life as I conceive it without being a composer. Now, that being said, uh, I'm sort of torn by that because one of the other things that attracted me to Balinese music way back in the day was that I didn't have any plans to compose for it. I mean, I ended up composing for it, but like there was a, there was a liberation in playing other people's music. And so the discovery was more the other way around that like creating my own music was just something that came very natural to me, which is not to say that I was any good at it. And it's actually not even to say that I'm any good at it now, but it's just something that I have to do. So whereas playing, I, I sometimes have to convince myself that being an interpretive artist is valid. And that goes back to what I was saying about working with the original All-Stars, you know, particularly with Steve Schick and Maya Beiser, who, for whom performance of other people's music is absolutely the art, you know? And that's one of the reasons why, like, one of the first big projects I did after I left Bananacam was to produce Maya's record because I really just wanted to kind of touch that sort of artistry, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, reinvigorate myself. Because, you know, when you're in a group for 20 years, uh, you know, certain things, you start, start to take certain things for granted. So I really wanted to kind of rediscover that kind of level of commitment and artistry that she has. Um, but, you know, now I'm actually doing a lot of, it's funny because um, I'm not so interested in playing other people's music, but I am interested in arranging and I am interested in conducting and I'm interested in kind of transforming, um, you know, so there's a funny in-between space. Arrangers don't get a lot of credit in our musical culture, but 
for me, there's something deeply satisfying about doing arrangements now because I get to kind of embrace, you know, the music that I love, but I also get to kind of be creative with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I definitely agree with that. So we're going to do the lightning round now, which is just a quick series of questions that are designed to be answered in less than a minute. Um, if I was to walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find? An iPad. An iPad full of music or? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Really? But, so you, you're you using all your digital, it's digital, digitalized, I go back and digitized. Forth. I, put, I put a lot of stuff on it, but but seriously, it depends on which music stand. So, I mean. Ah, my, um, <laughs> the philosopher. I, I, but on the yeah, on the clarinet stand right now is actually a transcription of Jimi Hendrix's uh, improvisations at Woodstock that I've been trying to figure out how to do on the clarinet. So there's that and the Bach cello suites, which are sort of the only things I practice regularly on the on the clarinet. Interesting. And on the on the piano, uh, sort of randomly right now, there's Prokofiev piano sonatas just because I pulled them out the other day. But there's also um, several jazz transcriptions of the, that I've done. And then I learned to play them, which is how I practice the piano. So there's an Art Tatum crazy rhythm and a, a, about half of this really beautiful piece from Keith Jarrett's first solo record and some Thelonious Monk. So that's that. What's your all-time favorite piece of music or album in any genre? Okay, that is a really tough one. I don't know that I can answer that. But for some reason, the piece that comes to mind is a keyboard piece by Rameau called Les Trois Mains, The Three Hands. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other one, if I have to be honest, has got to be David Burns marching through the wilderness from the Ray Momo record because that's like my psych-up music. You know, like if I'm ever going into a situation I'm nervous about, that's what I'll put on to kind of get me in the right headspace. But for albums, I would go, I, does it have to be one? No, I, no, no. You can, okay. <laughs> I suppose so, not. Uh, the Schulte Chicago Symphony recording of The Rite of Spring, which is what got me into this whole racket to begin with. Uh, and then uh, Earth, Wind, Fires, That's the Way of the World. And um, Weather Report's Black Market. And then Esquivel's Other Worlds, Other Sounds. You know, for some reason, I was just reminded about, I wanted to quickly discuss your, your um, involvement with the Davy, David Bowie tribute concert. Oh, yeah. How was that? How was that uh, planned out and how, how did it? it? It was a genuine response to how freaked out I was about his death. Yes. So it, uh, my wife, Christine Southworth, who's also a composer, and I were down in, at an artist retreat in Florida. And for some reason, everybody there was talking about David Bowie all week. And, and the guy, who, uh, actually another Canadian named Jonathan Garfinkel, really wonderful writer, author, had been listening to Black Star like obsessively and he was living in the house next to ours and he was playing it really loud all the time. <laughs> and then suddenly Bowie died and, uh, you know, I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I like pulled out my phone, you know, as we all obsessively do and I saw this news alert about it and I thought it was a dream because we had been talking about Bowie so much. And then like everybody else on the planet, like I just over the next kind of day and a half just found myself being really waked out by this in a much more powerful way than I thought it would be. And much more than I had been by say Boulez's death or, you know, even Prince's death recently, or, you know, a lot of things like, and I just didn't know what to do with that emotion. And then I was thinking about the fact that, um, a lot of classical musicians would be in this situation, right? Because we couldn't just play Ziggy Stardust, right? On mm -hmm. the violin. 
So a friend of mine uh, called me up and he said, you know, why doesn't somebody, I wish, I don't understand why somebody isn't doing these Philip Glass Bowie symphonies. You know, it seems like such a great way to, to, you know, pay tribute. And I thought, well, wait, I could do that. Like, I bet I could do that. So, you know, like it was winter term at MIT, so it was possible to get a hall. And I just started like emailing like crazy, like basically every musician that I knew in Boston. And really before, you know, like within 48 hours, we had like an 80 person orchestra. Wow. And, you know, so we, you know, we made it a cancer benefit. And so people were very willing to to donate and come and, you know, kind of turned into this really beautiful event. We had like a thousand people there and, uh, you know, it was the biggest orchestra I had ever conducted since I had been a graduate student really, you know, and, um, the players were incredibly generous with their time and, you know, it, there was a real feeling in the rehearsals and in the concert, you know, because we all had this kind of emotion about it and it was a fantastic way to, channel that you know to do something together to do something that allowed us to think about Bowie and also you know make some small contribution to the world but what also happened was those pieces are not so well known but you know Glass definitely like chose a lot of the somber more somber movements from those albums right and like it really felt like a requiem you know it felt like really appropriate music to play when somebody really important to a community leaves us. I think that's a fantastic tribute. And I'm, I'm actually just blown away. You were able to put it together in such a short time. Well, uh, you know, sometimes ignorance of what something is going to entail is your friend, right? Like, so yeah. you just get a kooky idea and then you get involved and you're like, okay, here we are, we're doing this. But like I had a really good support network and I have to kind of give it up to MIT where I teach and not, you know, not so much MIT as an institution, but just like various administrators around that university, you know, like the woman who runs the concerts office, Clarice Snyder, or like whoever it was in the parking office that said, oh yeah, the musicians could park in this lot for free. Or like, you know, like there were just innumerable little things that could have just like shot down that project because normally you have to arrange them like months in advance or pay a lot of money, you know, raise, you know, like to kind of do something like that on two weeks notice. No, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So I'm, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, says a lot for the value of having like kind of communities of common interest, you know, or the university in general. Well, but there, there you go again. Like that one of the first things you said on this interview was about sort of following what you believe to be right and taking signs and just kind of running with stuff and, there you go, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that one worked out. Of course, now I want an orchestra, but. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which symphonies are those? Just so I can write them down for the, is that the, the low symphony part of that? The low symphony and the hero symphony, which are now That's called. That's three and oh, four, right? I think it's one and four. One and four. Okay, yeah, I've actually yeah. played the low symphony. It's gorgeous. Yeah, very beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Yeah. So moving on here, if you could meet any musician throughout history, uh, who would it be? Well, I met Ornette Coleman. And I actually met Bowie too, so we oh, can wow. take the list. But um, you know, the great Indian composer Tiaga Raja, you know, that it would have been awesome. Or Pythagoras, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd love to talk about. T- wow, John- that's, that's a first. <laughs> yeah, John Lennon. Yeah, you know, it's interesting though. I mean, some of the people on someone like my bucket list are people you worked with extensively, so you have had a pretty 
amazing career in that way. Um, what's your favorite book and why? Uh, I'm sorry to be so indecisive, but again, it's going to be a tie between uh, <laughs> uh, this Portuguese novelist, Jose Saramago, the book Blindness. I love that book. I just love the way he writes. There's, there's the way he's, there's a kind of gentle and kind of really humorous humanity to describing the most horrendous things imaginable that somehow seems right to me. Mm-hmm. So that I would put that up at, with a tie with Go Dog Go. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was the book I kept coming back to. Like That was the book I never got tired of reading to my kids. So like, put- I think there's a deeply simple poetry in Go Dog. <laughs> I think I'm going to put links for both of these in the uh, the show notes there and people can... I used check it. them out for themselves. I, last time I played drill, uh, well, there's a part in drill where like I start playing a little tune and then gradually one by one all the instruments come in and I was trying to tell the players how to do it. And I said, it's like a dog party. It's a big dog party. <laughs> <laughs> so very influential book as far as I'm concerned. So where can listeners find you online? I know you have a website, which is ziporin.com, uh, Z-I-P-O-R-Y-N.com. Do you have any social media or other means of getting in touch? Oh, sure. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I have a, a pretty um, active Bandcamp page, which I do think is Bandcamp slash Evan Zipporin. You can find all sorts of stuff there. On my website, actually, which is Zipporin.com, sort of in the more in the composition section, you can, re- you can find recordings of pretty much everything. And people can purchase them there, or is there a better place to... They can just listen to them. If they want to purchase them, they should go to Bandcamp. Bandcamp? Okay, great. Yeah. Or, you know, most of it's on iTunes, too, but... Yeah, iTunes, I don't know. This is, the Spotify thing is so weird, but I also noticed your your music was up there. But I would encourage people, to, if they're interested in, in listening, to either purchase through the, the Bandcamp or the iTunes. Yeah, thanks. Or the legitimate CDs, which are which are also, you know, still a thing. You get lossless music, right? Yeah, and I got ton- I got tons of boxes of them down <laughs> in the basement. So, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to share with the clarinet audience before we wrap up? Well, the two projects I mean I'm mainly involved with now is a solo project called In My Mind and In My Car, which I is a collaboration with Christine Southworth, who is also my wife and is also a composer, and is also a video artist, and uh, that's been a really uh, nice vehicle. At this point, it's over an hour long, and. Uh, it kind of more reflects where my music is at this moment. So there's that. And then I have this trio that I'm very excited about with two fantastic improviser composers, Eva Bitova and Jan Riley. And we're called Evian. And uh, we have a couple of really nice CDs out as well. So that's kind of more where my music is at at this moment. I mean, it's always really fun to talk about the music that's been really important to me in my life. But right now, those are the things that are occupying my my musical thought. Would you send me some links to those so I can throw them up in the show notes too? Sure. I think people would like to check that out for sure. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Evan. It was just wonderful to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like more information, or if you'd like to support the podcast, please see clarineat.com. Here you can subscribe, shop, Learn more about this and other episodes, and even discuss episodes with other listeners in the new Clarinet forums. Again, see clarinet.com for details. This episode was brought to you by Dedaria Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. 
But now, Daddario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Daddario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Daddario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.